unveiling of the company of heaven. Every man and every woman is a star. co-host for this evening. I am Eric Scott Picard, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Patrick Ryan. Hey, how's it going, everyone? We've got a real interesting show for you this evening. We're going to be talking about alchemy, um, specifically uh, alchemy astrology with Tim Wilkerson. <clears throat> I'm going to read from uh, some biographical information about Tim here before we get started. So, Tim Wilkerson teaches astrology and practical laboratory alchemy to people who are looking for a non-dogmatic understanding about themselves and our physical world. This is particularly useful for those who want to discover personal talents and have a desire to find trust in their unique spiritual path. It gives them tools to help them to gain confidence in becoming their own intuitive guide. He has spoken at three international alchemy conferences and one regional event in Washington. He is the author of the how-to handbook, Alchemy Astrology, Lost Key to the Philosopher's Stone, and fields questions online to anyone who purchases a copy. He moderates a Facebook group, Alchemy Astrology, and regularly posts on Practical Astro Forecast on WordPress, Tumblr, Twitter, and Pinterest. Uh, you could visit his website at alchemyastrology.com, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Uh, for now, Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's great to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, Particularly, uh, you know, this is kind of a unique, um, it's a unique opportunity to speak with someone who's doing this kind of work in alchemy, and I'm curious about the uh, the astrology aspect as well. Um, I guess first of all, you know, kind of introduce yourself to the audience, you know, and how you got into this field of study. Like, what led you on the journey to uh, start writing books on this subject and practicing practical alchemy? Well, in my 20s, I was looking for a way to maintain my personal health, and I wanted to do it naturally. So I began foraging for medicinals and learned quite a bit about it, and a friend of mine said, oh, you should go to the Paracelsus College. They can teach you how to process and produce a purified product that's a lot better than just taking herb capsules, which I was doing at the time, or even better than making crude tinctures, you know, just an alcohol extract, a colored extract. And the universe was all up for that because at the time I had just gone permanent in a temporary job. I was there just a couple of weeks, and they had a policy that you could take your vacation right away. 
So I had two weeks vacation and took it <laughs> and flew out to Utah from the Midwest and took this course. So it, it all just synchronistically worked out. And that was in 1983. Um, ever since then, I've been doing the practical lab work as they taught. They, have, they had, the school is no longer there, a two-week intensive course that gave you a year's worth of experiments to investigate. Experiment procedures, anyway. And so I started doing that and continued with it for a couple of decades. Uh, finally, the Internet came into being, and I was suddenly in contact with other alchemists. So I'd been studying on my own all this time. The, uh, the astrology was part of the lessons, and I continued to do astrology charts for all my experiments. And when I got in contact with this group of alchemists, I found that no one was really continuing with that word. Like they learned it, but then they didn't use it for their experiments. I was asked to go and be a, uh, represent the Paracelsus College as an alumni and speak on a panel. And someone asked about the astrology, and I was surprised that the other alchemists just kind of didn't know anything about it, really, other than the basics of what they were taught. And they weren't, you know, real up on that. They, they didn't remember a lot about it. And so I was able to say that I thought it was really important and why. The, at the time, president of the International Alchemy Guild, he was president for North America, um, got with me afterwards and he says, you know, you're probably the foremost living expert on astrology for alchemy. <laughs> huh. I was surprised. He says, you should write a book about it. And of course, I was like, I said, do you realize how much work that would be? And we both laughed because he'd written several books. That was Dennis William Hawk. And you can you can Google or I mean YouTube his uh, his lectures. And he can go in great detail into the history and some of the lab procedures. And so I took up the challenge, and within a couple of years, I had this book ready. And I was invited back then to the next International Alchemy Conference in Las Vegas to speak specifically on that. And that got me started uh, teaching on a broader level. I'd been teaching for a while, every once in a while, a college that dealt in herbs and those kind of things would invite me to teach, and over the years I did demonstrations. I've, I've done demonstrations for a lot of years uh, at festivals, the Midwest Herb Fest. Every year I do a demonstration, and that started a, a school about four years ago, so annually we have a weekend intensive where I teach the basics of herbal alchemy. Mm. Um, Interesting. How would you say that the 
the alchemical process differs from just your traditional herbalism? Well, the theory behind it is that, number one, alchemists uh, state, believe, function as though everything is has life. Everything is alive from, you know, rocks to stars. And the theory is that there are within that a soul, a spirit, and, of course, the body. And so you separate these three parts, these three theoretical parts, and you purify them and then recombine them to evolve or awaken the energies of the plant or mineral if you're into mineral alchemy. And in mainstream herbalism, uh, if there is such a thing, they mostly just deal with parts of the plants or they consume it raw or as a water extract and in some cases an alcohol extract. But they leave behind the body. The body is composted or discarded. You know, you don't save your tea bag. Well, in alchemy, you would. You would save that body and purify it with fire and then return it to the final product so that you have the spirit, which is the alcohol, and you have the soul, which is the unique properties of the plant, the essential oil, the thing that makes it unique. And then you have uh, the body and putting these three parts back together. In the mainstream herbalism, they just use parts. You know, there, there's no completeness. The theory is that in doing this process, you raise the vibration of the plant and to the level of an animal's vibration. So you have minerals and metals as a lower vibration, then you have the plants as a little higher than that, and then the animal, which is higher than that. So you're raising this vibration up to make it more compatible with our systems. Interesting. So, uh, this process, is that essentially what we're talking about when we use the phrase practical laboratory alchemy? And, and how does that differ from, uh, you know, I guess the general perception of alchemy? Yes, this this is what is termed as the practical alchemy, the, the actual work. Um, there is spiritual alchemy and psychological alchemy that uh, like Dr. Jung used. Sure, yeah. And they're all interrelated. They, you can't really separate one from the other. Interesting, interesting. It's, it's you know, that, that whole process that you just described and I've, I've thought about this quite in depth, actually. It seems to me that when you look at at least um, Western or modern-day medicine, we've sort of come through this point of dissecting things and pulling things apart and dividing things from their, you know, into individual constituents. But we haven't taken that final step yet. We haven't really 
fully reassimilated them all back together. Um, I mean, uh, uh, there's a large amount in Western medicine, as I'm sure you're aware, that you know uses plant extracts or synth or a synthesized plant chemical that has a specific effect that we use to you know treat a certain illness or whatnot. But it's like we haven't really fully gone that full circle yet of bringing the the, the totality of that plant back together. And um, I just always found it fascinating, you know, that that concept of what I I believe the proper term is the coagula of you know coming full circle. And um, and I'm just sort of interested on what what your take is with the alchemical process. I mean, can it? Is there a way to sort of reconcile it with modern medicine? In a way, I mean, is there? Um, I mean, I know Newton was an alchemist. I know a lot of uh, the the pioneers of science were alchemists. Um, is it still? Do you think you could re reconcile it into the modern day? Well, the pharmaceutical companies look for the active ingredient in plants, and a large percentage of medications are still made from plants. Our system has made it difficult, though, to make enough profits for the big companies to warrant doing an alchemical type process because anybody can do it. So what they try to do is get the most active ingredient, isolate it, in some cases synthesize it or alter it so that it can be patented. And then they own the rights to it and can make enough money to justify pursuing that. Um, the problem is that plants have natural buffers that help to alleviate side effects from the active principle in the plant. Now, if they were to investigate that and also isolate those buffers and use them in combination with the active, you wouldn't have the kind of side effects. Because the plant has its own buffers to prevent that, to the side effects. Otherwise, it would be poisoning itself, really. Hmm. Also, in modern medicine, they tend to create a healing situation by stressing another part of your body. So if they were to look at that, they would probably see an advantage to including more of the parts of the plant. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, it, it is a lot of scientific pursuits in the modern era i think um they're, they're kind of as pat was saying they're, they're based on division um where it seems like the the practical alchemy that you're talking about is more based on union uh bringing all the parts together into the you know the complex whole that makes up the component parts yeah and and the final process is also more assimilable 
Like when, if you eat a raw herb, say in a dried in a capsule, your body has to give energy to that in the process of digestion in order to extract from it the beneficial properties. Just like with food. There's always parts of food that you can't use and they're eliminated. And a spagyric or an alchemical product does that ahead of time. For instance, um, there was this a two-week-old baby who had cold symptoms. So my partner, Cricket, she put um, spagyric on her finger and rubbed it on the soft spot of this baby. And within a few seconds, the symptoms disappeared and the baby finally was able to sleep. So that's how simulable an alchemical product is. If someone's really weak and they're in the hospital and you give them a drug, they have to give energy to that drug in order for it to be processed in a way that their body can use it. Whereas with an alchemical product, it's already processed, it's immediately assimilable, and they don't have to give up any more energy to get the benefits. Medications, as they use today, can actually drag a person down further. Mm. Yeah, and it seems like uh, <clears throat> certainly some of these medications, I mean, the, uh, uh, the side effects and the strain that some of the modern medications put on the human body, uh, some of them don't even seem worth worth the consumption. Yeah, chemotherapy is a good example. Mm. It poisons your entire body in hopes that the cancer, for instance, if it were cancer that was a problem, uh, or tumor, will, will die or be more sensitive to that poison than the rest of your body. Um, there's studies that I've read about, and I can't confirm it, but some plants like dandelion actually help kill cancer cells without damaging any healthy cells at all. Um, there's been some reports of this same effect with cannabinols uh, extracted from uh, marijuana. Mm. And... They don't contain any of the entheogenic properties any longer. They, they use more of the crude oils, uh, which are not so pure in alchemical theory, but they don't damage the, the healthy cells. So that's an advantage. Again, the pharmaceutical companies face the problem of being able to patent their product and make enough of a return to justify that pursuit that that's super fascinating i've i've actually done quite a bit of research on dandelion myself and um yeah it seems like a very promising herb when it comes to cancer and tumor formation and whatnot um but you know it, it's it's the whole alchemical path has always fascinated me because of you know like we were saying earlier we have the lab work, the practic practicality of it, but it's just not simply lab work. It's just not simply practicality. Um, there's this whole spiritual undertone to it. Could you give us just a basic rundown of that, of how it sort of um, resonates with personal development? 
Yeah. Alchemy, the practical work, is more of an art than mm. a science. So it depends. It depends greatly on the abilities of the alchemist, uh, their awareness, their sensitivity, uh, you know, their ability to observe on very subtle levels. Uh, like if you held up a bottle of a clear liquid and shook it, I could tell you whether it was alcohol or water just by looking at it. And you develop that kind of awareness through practice. Um, science tells us that in experiments, there is an effect or an influence simply through the observation of the of the person doing the experiment. Yeah. And I think that's pretty well established with some... Uh, they had some slit uh, experiments where they aimed electrons through these slits and, and they would split in one way and then when someone watched them, they would split in another. Um, so it takes you deep inside yourself to develop an intuition. You know, that, that's something that can't be intellectually learned. That's where the astrology comes in, is it helps you develop your intuition. And how, I mean, I've, I've read very, very little on alchemy, but from what I have read, it uh, astrology always played uh, a semi-big role on it, um, especially... You know, for the listeners who aren't very familiar, the idea of as as above, so below, the um, astrological events going on when you are preparing your alchemical elixir, um, according to the theory, has a pro profound effect. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit how that whole process sort of works out? Well, a long time ago, and I mean a long time ago, at least uh, there are records of people recording moon cycles as far back as 30,000 years ago. And I think it went back further than that. But imagine an indigenous people, for instance, which probably at that time everyone was. I don't know. There may have been some cities. But imagine them just observing their environment the night sky was their television. You know, there wasn't anything to do at night. They watched the stars and noticed, noticed that some of them moved. And then they noticed that when there were certain stars behind those moving stars, they could recognize a pattern of influences. Something as basic as, uh, well, let's, let's start with the moon, which is most obvious. Everyone knows the moon causes the tides. They noticed that when the moon was in Sagittarius, that they needed to prepare their fires and have more wood available or more fuel available for those fires because it burned up real quick. Well, when the moon's in Sagittarius, this is the time to do, to process the body and turn it into a salt. And it happens a lot quicker when the moon's in Sagittarius. 
and it uses a, a lot less fuel, it's more efficient. It burns, you know, it burns hotter. You don't have to turn it up as high to get it to burn. So taking, you know, this intuitive approach, they then projected that onto, say, onto the citizens, you know, the people of the community. Um, they also started noticing differences in their behaviors and a pattern in those differences when, you know, the stars were in certain positions. The elders could look and say, oh, that child was born in this situation and with these stars, and look, it fits the pattern. They do act this way. So it, that was the seed of astrology. Yeah, observations of uh, the natural world, right? Um, yeah. <clears throat> then composing kind of a, a worldview, both physical and spiritual, um, based on those observations, yeah. Yeah, and in civilizations or communities around the world all develop this. The Native Americans have a form of astrology that's very similar, and they didn't have any contact as far as we know, except maybe the Vikings, with the western, uh, the eastern part of the globe, or what we call the eastern part of the globe. Yeah, yeah, it seems, you know, uh, like Jung would say, almost like a uh, an archetype, uh, that societies really seem to... <clears throat> I mean, obviously something like, you know, the heavens, the cosmos above is something that was experienced by all human beings, no matter where they were in the globe. But it seems like all human societies kind of developed very simul similar impressions when they looked at the heavens. Yeah, I think that's a, a clue to its feasibility. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That's certainly fascinating. So uh, how then... Uh, you know, in the practical, you know, the practical aspect of alchemy, then, how does the astrology affect, um, like, individual experiments or, you know, individual practice? Well, the most noticeable part, again, is the moon. There's 12 signs and there's 12 lab processes, like the one I, I mentioned, moon in Sagittarius is incineration. And there's two other fire signs that uh, also employ a theory of fire, using it as a purifier or an extractor. Mm -hmm. The moon in Aries would be for calcining, uh, continuing to uh, purify the salts and whiten them. The moon in Leo is for digestion, which is a precursor to fermentation and or uh Preparing the salts so that they will dissolve into the final product. So it's the, kind of a, a cycle that follows the wheel of the year. Well, or the month in this case, because the moon goes around every month mm -hmm. around the wheel. The other important factor in the astrology is in comparing your birth chart which imprints you with a certain 
talents, you may call them, certain uh, natural-born awarenesses of aspects of life. And you can compare that, your birth chart, to the daily chart when you are preparing to do your experiment and see what kind of uh, advantages are in that. Um, an example would be like Mars. You know, if, if the Mar, if where Mars was at when you were born is in aspect to where Mars is for that day, it may help you uh, decide sort of impulsively, but intuitively decide where you want to take your experiment and which process you want to start with. Mostly the astrology is used to decide if you have an active or a passive day. It's, it's pretty basic. If you have an active day, your lab experiment is probably going to go a lot better. And in a passive day, I've noticed is when I make mistakes or something is broken or, you know, mm. electricity goes out that day or something. So you look for an active day so that you can imprint the experiment. Um, the day you start processing the herb will be charged up by the influences that are in the air, so to speak. That's such a fascinating way. I mean, not just to conduct alchemical experiments, but just to live life in general, you know, and I think it's something that's most definitely fallen out of the mainstream uh, way of understanding how, how life in the universe works. You know, I feel like this idea is so pervasive in science that it's just this, um, this nihilistic perspective on the universe that it's just random and quote unquote chaos and that there's really no underlying structure, underlying rhythm and flow. But you know, the alchemical perspective is that's totally wrong that there is a flow, there is a rhythm. And if you could tune into that and and design your society or design your life around that rhythm, then you're you could, you know, live a more fulfilling and productive life or have a more fulfilling and, you know, beautiful culture or society. And I just feel that um, we've totally fallen away from that uh, perspective. I'm of the belief that we're kind of going full circle. At some point, we will sort of, you know, it, it it's happening like that alchemical process that you were speaking of earlier is sort of playing itself out on a macrocosmic level that we, we, we understood it in indigenous times and now we've sort of fallen away from it in order to, you know, sort of isolate the individual constituents and now we're sort of going full circle and spiraling up to now reassimilating it back into modern day society. Um, and I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts or perspectives on, you know, how these things sort of work out um, on societal levels. Well, our society, at least in my experience in the United States, is is very intellectual, very mental. And of course, the mind really can't understand anything unless it breaks it down into little parts. Mm -hmm. they, it, uh, 
is kind of a I don't know having trouble finding the right word it, it it's just only a part of the big picture because we come from such an intellectual standpoint and and that results in science looking at the universe as a mechanical construct it, it, everything works mechanically you know you do this that happens you do it there's no spirit there's no heart to it it's all intellectual and i think science is realizing now that we need to include that intellectual that because the experimenter does have influence on the experiment we need to look closer at that uh, rupert sheldrake has a great TEDx talk where he mentions that lab experiments done in one part of the world say teaching rats to run a maze if someone in another parts of the world uses the same maze and the same genetic rats the rats will learn it quicker they they have a connection over hmm. with there's no distance then and then the more times that different labs are set up in different places the rats learn it quicker and quicker and quicker so a form of more, genetic memory yeah well no he calls it uh morphogenetic <laughs> yeah that's it it's morphogenetic it, it's a sympathy that that covers a long distance they recently saw something happen on the sun you know, like a flare or something. And it was detected immediately. Like they have a satellite out there watching it. So they know exactly when it happened. And then compared to that to when they observed it on Earth. And it happened exactly at the same moment. This this morphic uh, situation. I can't think of the word exactly. Morphic, morphic something. Resonance. Morphic, morphic resonance. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Morphic resonance. And it should have taken at least eight minutes because that's how long it takes for light to get here from the sun. So, and it didn't. It happened exactly at the same moment. So, the astrology, you know, the science will say, oh, they're, the gravity is so weak and they're so far away. The planets are so far away. They, they don't have any influence on us. But when you consider the morphic resonance concept, their effects are immediate. If you can see the light from a star, it is affecting you. It's at least making an imprint on your eyeballs. Yeah, you know, right. there is an effect there. And they also aren't considering the electromagnetic properties of the solar system. Like we always see a model of the solar system is just sitting there and the, and the sun's just sitting there and the planets are going around it. And for some reason, they don't consider that the solar system is kind of tipped at an angle, almost on its edge, and it's flying around the Milky Way at some 43,000 miles a second. And they're spinning, and each one of them has some sort of magnetic energy that they emanate, like Jupiter actually releases more energy than it can absorb from the sun. 
which kind of puzzles science right now. Hmm. So these influences, you know, like apples in a whirlpool, like in a barrel, put a bunch of apples floating in a barrel and spin that barrel and watch what the apples do. They aren't affecting each other as apple to apple, but in that vortex, they are affecting each other. They'll bounce off each other. They'll interfere with each other's paths. You know, like the orbit of Venus isn't consistent because Mars flips by it and influences its its orbit and changes how long it takes for it to go around the sun. Jupiter and Saturn are big examples. When they're together, their, their orbital... Uh, constants are out the window you know the Saturn takes 12 years to go around the Sun but it varies depending on what Jupiter is doing oh no I'm sorry Jupiter takes 12 years I got them backwards Saturn takes like 28 27 29 it's all you know it depends on how they interact with each other mm -hmm. well how does that affect Earth these are big planets. I've noticed that when Jupiter and Saturn are together, opposite the Sun, with the Earth kind of in the middle, we have bigger earthquakes. Like it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Like if there's any kind of pressure built up, when that alignment happens, or just before or just after that alignment actually, we have big earthquakes. And I went back and did charts for all the major, you know, like eight-point magnitude earthquakes and they all had a Jupiter Saturn Sun influence and and the moons in there too and it was either straight across from each other or at a 90 degree angle that these giant earthquakes happen I've got a prediction on my website for 2020 that where situation is lined up much like the big earthquakes in the early I think it was 1800s 1811 here in the United States and I think it can happen again you know the situation is set up if, unless maybe fracking releases some of that tension uh, I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in for a big earthquake in 2020 I think in I think it's in July uh, but you can go to the website and look at my earthquake page and you'll see the prediction there yeah, I, I, I see your earthquakes sec, uh, section here, and that is interesting. You you know that the uh, you know astrological uh, astronomical forces you know exerting themselves on the Earth. You know, yeah, and it has an effect on us. I, we're here. It, it can't just affect the Earth and not us. So that you know, that's an example of going beyond just the mechanical mental evaluation of what's going on you you have to look at the evidence and then feel for the understanding of it and see that it all works together at, not as parts but as a machine that is alive and moving and and has a vibrance to it it's not just dead matter floating around in space the, the seven major planets, the ones we can see without a telescope, coincidentally correspond to our seven colors, our seven basic colors, yeah. and our seven, our seven notes. We have seven notes. And this is part of alchemy and understanding 
you know, if we lived in a solar system with three planets, we'd have three colors. That's the theory. It just takes, it takes a deeper understanding and of yourself and what's going on around you to come to these conclusions. Science doesn't include that in their experiments. They, they want a repeatable kind of an experiment. And so, so to do that, it has to be thought of as mechanical. You know, so it seems like a kind of um, <clears throat> that cosmic forces then uh, project some sort of influences on human beings as a species, and then human beings then project some level of meaning of our own back onto those physical bodies. Yeah, well, archetypically, archetypically, yeah, yeah. We have to consider a deeper meaning than just an intellectual one. Mm. It kind of um, it kind of makes me think of this quote that I'm looking at here on your website that I've been mulling over uh, a good bit of the day, and, and I really enjoy this quote. Let me uh, let me read it to you and see if you'll react to it. Um, I believe that as science continues to explore cosmic influences. Advances in nuclear physics, geophysics, microbiology, and healthcare will gain momentum. The ancient alchemists led us to the science of chemistry, and I have found evidence that there's much more they can impart to us. Yeah, they have to get beyond this repeatable experiment idea. They have to look at it deeper, and they're just they're they're not holistic in their approach. Mm. Modern scientists seek to discover repeatable experiments. Alchemists experimentally seek to repeat discovery. Mm. I like mm. that. That that's actually you know, and I've never I've never actually thought about it from that perspective before. Um, you know, the idea that science, the seeking, like you said, repeatability is sort of perpetuating this mechanistic perspective of the world. It's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if we just sort of broadened our our minds a little bit and, and, and looked at maybe other ways of delving into scientific inquiry instead of making repeatability the, you know, the gold standard, possibly we would understand things in a more holistic, thorough level. Yeah, I think we're headed back towards that. You know, you, you kind of have to leave home to appreciate it. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. And and we've definitely left home. And, mm. You know, in the scientific community. But they're starting to come back to it. They're they're seeing, you know, they're seeing that things aren't that cut and dry, that there really aren't any constants. We can say they are constant in our observation, but more, the universe is habitual, and nature is habitual. Nature has habits, and there's always exceptions, always, and science will always run into these exceptions, and hopefully they'll run into enough of them that they'll quit using constants as part of their uh, tools, you know, as one of their tools. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake again mentions that uh, 
they used to measure the speed of light every once in a while and over the years it changes hmm. and he asked one of the prominent scientists at the time you know how do you uh, how do you deal with that you know how do you justify that you know isn't that a problem that the speed of light may be more like a weather report. The speed of light today is blah, 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 instead of a constant. And you say, oh, we fixed that. We made it a constant. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to deal with that. Well, science, you're going to have to get over that because those are that's the habit of light. And we don't know what, what affects it. We know the sun bends light around it. That was the proof for Einstein's theory of relativity. He There was a galaxy behind the sun and he went to a, an observatory and you could see the light from that galaxy in four points around the sun equal equally spaced around the sun because the sun the power of the sun in the gravity of the sun was bending that light around itself and focusing it in on the earth and you could see the four points of light but there was only one source so how does that affect the speed of light that you're bending it it's being bent around the sun you know they're they're not considering these things i don't even know if they can measure that but they're not considering it does if the theory of dark matter and dark energy is is real and light passes through a field of dark energy does it change its speed they don't know they're not looking. So in other words, it, it you know, the first step then is having the, the, the curiosity to ask the questions before, you know, the answer will actually reveal itself in a certain sense. Yeah, and the curiosity and, and they need to let go of the dogma. Right. Because they, they've made it, you know, They've decided that it was this is the way it is, and there's no need to look any further. But they're starting. They're starting to realize that they're, you know, they need to look more deeply or more open-mindedly at the different processes of the universe. They recently found a bunch of uh, novas that destroy their theory of novas you know it's like the these are way too far apart and they're in that pattern you know that spiral pattern that you see all in nature and they're way too far apart to fit our theories well you know now what do we do well you've just observed the universe not keeping to one of its habits hmm Right, maybe it's time for a new theory. Maybe we we only had it half right, you know. Maybe, and and maybe the theory having a theory is just a guideline. Sure, you know? sure, sure. Yeah. Right, <laughs> it's not a law. Exactly, and you know, I I've talked about these ideas before, and I've spread them around amongst you know a lot of my more skeptical friends who you know went to school for engineering or whatnot. <laughs> You know, I've I've heard people accuse others that talk about these things as being quote unquote anti-science, like um, preaching some sort of anti-intellectualism. And, and and to me, from my perspective, it's like no, it's the, the total opposite. It's unplugging myself 
from, like you said, dogma. It's in my in my perspective, this is the true science because this is based on honest inquiry. It's saying, well, hey, you know, we have a theory, we have an observed pattern, but let's look at this pattern and be open to the possibility that it might change or there might be variables. And I think this whole notion of like the bell curve of taking the average of everything and taking what's been repeated the most and disregarding, you know, the X factors that are yeah. on the other ends, you're, you're limiting yourself. You're, you're only looking at half the picture when you approach reality in that way. Exactly. You're, you're not looking at the soul of the situation. You're right. The uniqueness of every situation. You're not, they're not considering that they want it to all be mechanical and you know and, and then therefore then they can use that information in a mechanical way and be have a dependable result that there's nothing dependable in the nothing is always going to be the way that it appears and honestly we don't know that the way we observe thing is anything close to the way they appear like something as simple as color or or you know we don't see in all the light spectrums exactly, they recently yeah. discovered animals can see ultraviolet light that's part of the way cats can see at night uh, and so our limited senses aren't going to give us a true picture of anything we can right. get right yeah we really only perceive our own central nervous system you know the stimuli you know yeah. our, our perception of the outside world is essentially limited by the hardware if you will of our physical biological bodies yeah we we can invent things that'll see the things our bodies can't detect but how do we know we're seeing everything because you know? it still has to be filtered through. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly right. right. There may be things we don't have the equipment to observe and then therefore don't even have any idea that they exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think being a little too certain on certain things or on pretty much anything really is a recipe for for ignorance, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the danger of what, uh, you know, some call scientism, you know, capital S, scientism. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, science becomes dogmatic and, and almost, it, it almost becomes a theology, you know, an autocratic theology. Yeah, or even a religion for exactly. some, you know. Uh, there were some, a mathematician once proved that the universe is governed by an outside consciousness. He proved it mathematically. Uh, Dennis William Hawk talks about this in one of his lectures. And some mathematicians actually who had devoted had doctorates and had devoted their whole life to math answering all of the all of the questions about the universe committed suicide. <laughs> I know, right? Some of, <laughs> jumped out the window is like let's not get so focused on this intellectual approach right it, right there's more to it right leave room for the mystery you know i mean the, yeah. the mystery is what 
what propelled the whole thing forward from the beginning. Why do we want to extinguish it? Yeah, don't make discoveries by accident. Do it on purpose. And discovery can only happen is if, if you open your mind to other possibilities. You know, alchemy is, you know, as, as we were saying before, um, you know, Pat, I think you mentioned the, you know, the occultist slogan, you know, as above, so below, right? So we've talked a lot about um, <clears throat> the alchemy of without, but we haven't really talked about the alchemy of within or you know, an individual practice of alchemy, how that can affect someone's life. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, uh, I mean, what... What can alchemy and the practice of alchemy bring then to the individual and their psyche? And, and you know, I, I guess um, intellectually, spiritually, and physically. Well, Jung talks about the negrito, the looking deeply inside and, and processing the deep, the deep parts of yourself that aren't in your, uh, in your head, in your intellectual awareness. Well... When you sit for hours and days purifying the salts, it it becomes very meditative, and in effect, you're purifying yourself. It it sends you so far deep uh, inside. You know, it sends you so far into yourself that. In, in essence, you're purifying those things in your life that are in your way. Alchemy teaches that when energy meets resistance, it creates a field of force. Well, fields of force stop the flow of your own energy. So in doing the process and purification, it in a, you can't separate yourself from the experiment, just as science shows that the experimenter influences the experiment. The experiment can't not influence the experimenter. You know, it can't be a one-way street. It has to be a cycle. Um, so as you're purifying these salts, things come up for you. And that's the evidence to me that there's truth to this because as I sat for hours and processed salts, and learned, you know, how to make them white pure. Things came up for me, you know, just popped into my head. Things about I didn't even remember about my past that also needed to be processed so that I didn't have these fields of force interrupting my own personal energies. So that, that's one example. Uh, distillation is another very useful part of the process when you know for every herb you make you probably want to distill off the pure essential oils some people don't that that's a they don't take it quite that far but distillation is a similar thing and that when you're doing that things come up for you things uh, like evaporate and come up to the surface um, instead of like with the salts, you kind of go down and meet these meet this resistance within yourself, and with distillation, it comes up to meet you in your intellectual center, so that you know you can see the result and the action, and understand the process, 
it also affects you in a similar way. And understanding your astrology uh, helps you see these more clearly. Um, knowing what your natural talents are, knowing uh, you know what kind of challenges you've set up for yourself, so to speak. Um, if you believe that people choose their birth time, and I do, I believe that we're in a free will universe, so why wouldn't we be able to choose when we're born and who to, you know? So all of the, these concepts are factors in ourselves. You, you can't separate the experimenter from the experiment and expect the same result for sure. But so that's part of alchemy. That's why it's an art and, uh, and not a dry strict science you know do this and you and this will happen no it's always different every distillation is a little bit different every calcining go takes different amounts of time and has a different uh, success speed so to speak you know and that can be seen in doing the astrology some of that can be seen um, when I learned astrology at Paracelsus College they taught us tropical astrology, and I and I found that it was about 70% of the time it was accurate, and, and it told me, you know, it showed me ahead of time what kind of influences I was dealing with and how that may affect the lab, and when I was asked to write the book, I ran into information about Cyril Fagan, who... Uh, pointed out that the astrological wheel no more no longer matches the actual position of the stars it's called sidereal astrology mm. and so i went back through 30 years of lab notes and looked at the charts and adjusted them to sidereal and it was closer to 100% accurate huh. the stars flavor sections of the sky and we uh, can observe that you know in the physical world uh, with the tropical astrology that's not so much the case because because of the movement in tropical astrology planets can appear to be in a different sign so that, that throws it off. The tropical chart's about 24-ish degrees, depending on the day, off. Like, um, tropically, I was born with my son in Scorpio, but severely I'm a Libra. And when I go compare the two, the tropical astrology, being more the way other people see me or interrelate with me, and the sidereal astrology is more about me as a person. Which relates back to, you know, know thyself, and the lab work is going to help you do that. You know, help you look inward to see that. I feel like I'm turking, talking in circles. I, I hope that answers or it gives information towards your statement. No, yeah, I, I, I think that was an interesting response, and it's certainly... Uh, it, it, it certainly kind of shows how these influences kind of all connect um, 
and at the at that individual level, you, you know, at, at the process. Yeah. Like uh, you know, I, I remember reading a or not reading, watching rather a brilliant documentary on the topic of alchemy by none other than uh, Terence McKenna, and um, he's going around the different um, historical alchemical labs of uh, Prague, and he makes a really profound point. He says, you know, the mind is the alchemical vessel like that is like the ultimate um, understanding of alchemy that this is something where this is happening in your mind it's happening in your life like you were saying the alchemists and his lab work are at a deeper level one in the same it's a part of self-development it's not just strictly doing some isolated materialistic you know experiment that there's a dynamic element to it. And, and uh, I think really grasping that and fully utilizing that understanding, it's it could yield profound personal trans transformation. Yeah, it's very meditative. You know, and it, it can lead you to an awakening. In knowing thyself, know thyself is basically awakening uh it isn't that you know things about you like i play golf or whatever it, it's a knowing not a knowledge of yourself and alchemy will lead you to that awakening uh just like you know meditation can it enlightenment or awakening isn't something you can you can't make it happen right yeah. you if you could, everyone would be enlightened, right? You, you can't make it happen. It, it's more like an accident. But, but you can make yourself accident-prone. And doing this work clears out your resistance, your blocks, and makes you accident-prone to receiving or becoming one with, detecting, however you want to put it, that universal energy. Mm. Yeah. Right. Realizing that you are one with the macrocosmic dance, that there's no difference, that the patterns yeah. that are working yourself out in your life are actually working themselves out on a macrocosmic level. Yeah. There, there's no, like the intellect wants to separate everything and, and it has to, but there really isn't any separation. You know, like, we're all in the same atmosphere here. So, on a basic level, we're all breathing the same air. We're all connected on that level, and, and that goes deeper. In, in awakening, you realize that who you thought you were was just that, who you thought you were. And when you go beyond those thoughts, and you use your intuition and your perception, you become accident-prone... And, and you can detect this unity. Science, as an example again, likes to separate everything, and the mind has to do that. It has to at least separate everything into two parts. And, and we couldn't even talk if we didn't do that. The polarity of on 
cannot be understood unless you understand off. Well, alchemy helps you realize that on and off are two parts of the same thing. You know, that you can't have one without the other, so they must be two parts of the same thing. And that applies in the macro level as well. You know, when that story of Newton discovering gravity, the apple fell on his head, that's symbolic of the statement, as above, so below. If an apple can fall on your head here and you understand how that happened, it must apply to the cosmos. And that's what it did. <laughs> I've never thought about it like that, but you know what? You're right. <laughs> As below, so above. It's a circle. You can't separate one from the other any more than we're separated. You know, we're not separated. We're all here as one. We're all here as flowers of the tree of the universe, perceiving itself. And, you know, imagine your all-knowing universal consciousness. You created this universe. You know everything. Wouldn't that be kind of boring? Let's create some flowers that that have their own will and so that you know me as the universe say so i can be surprised once in a while yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know that doesn't mean we're separate it just means we're unpredictable oh, absolutely uh timothy we're gonna have to wrap up in a minute but i have one more question for you as i uh uh, I guess this is a, uh, well, it's certainly a good question to ask an alchemist, but I uh, apparently you've written a little bit about this subject. Um, that would be the Philosopher's Stone. So what is the Philosopher's Stone, and can we rediscover it? I think so. You know, uh, around 200 A.D., tropical astrology uh kind of took over and, and they lined the wheel up with the seasons and then it, it no longer was lined up with the stars. And through history, starting at about that point, fewer and fewer people were making the Philosopher's Stone. It, it used to be so popular or not easy, but, you know, more common to make the Philosopher's Stone back in the, you know, around 280. It's so much so that one of the pharaohs asked the alchemists to quit making gold. For a while, it was hurting the economy. And and the Romans actually made it the death penalty to, uh, to make alchemical gold because they were afraid someone was going to raise an army against them. So at one time, it must have been much easier to do. Well, then Ptolemy brought tropical astrology to the Western world, and it's... It, over time became less and less stories, or less and less possible. There were fewer stories about making the Philosopher's Stone. You know, some people may have made it by accident, so it really is dependent upon the stars. Well, I think that the Philosopher's Stone is a catalyst, an energetic catalyst, where you, you find the basic energy in a substance, that life-giving energy that evolved or, or that everything evolved from your isolating purifying and condensing it to create a catalyst that you can then project as the experimenter 
on whatever it is you want to transmute. Um, stories of the Fountain of Youth may have contained elements of this life-giving catalyst and I think it's related to the ancient archaic bacteria because like in the process of herbal alchemy you use microbes yeasts to capture the spirit of the plant the alcohol we call them spirits and that's the reason and then you use that in your experiment well in the mineral world there must be as above so below as within so without there must also be some a similar situation and I think it's the ancient archaic so imagine you know a hot springs like in Yellowstone where high temperature bacteria can live imagine one of those you know coming into your body and or and eating up all the free radicals in your body until you become uh, more youthful it, it gets rid of those old cells that are no longer functioning but that are still alive which is what we call aging and, you know and it it draws them away it consumes them so these observations were simply taken and searched for and a philosopher's stone was created and if you think of it as a catalyst if you take mercury the metal mercury and you zap it with high voltage electricity which isn't really affordable it, it will transmute it into gold or if you put mercury in a nuclear reactor it too can be transmuted into gold and this is scientifically proven but they're not economically viable so nobody's doing it so what if you had a catalyst that made that process easier something that is so primal that you could rediscover and condense and, and make into a stone or some it's been described as a white powder or red powder you know there's di uh, different descriptions about it and to facilitate this kind of reaction mercury is only one proton different than gold what if this catalyst bumped one of those protons out so I think it's it can be rediscovered I think it's dependent upon the energies that come from the cosmos and that needs to be understood with sidereal astrology which is more accurate to the historical record and therefore has you know precedence and we could once again discover this philosopher's stone so I think it's really possible that this exists and I've seen amazing things in just the herbal work that can't be explained scientist friends say I'm crazy you know oh you you extracted the salts you're making soap you know it's like well yeah the salts are basically a lie but no it's more than making soap <laughs> you're actually you're condensing the most viable vibrant energies of the plant so that it's assimilable and when you take a spagyric remedy the effects are immediate a friend of mine was uh, came with dandelion uh, Jim Fury also an herbalist and uh, you know a teacher and he had some allergic reactions out here in the wilderness and we gave him a spagyric of uh, nettles and his symptoms went away within seconds and he was he was amazed and I said yeah now as far as dose is concerned when the symptoms return take it again and each time they return take it again and each time it'll be further and further apart and then you'll forget to take it because the symptoms are gone 
you know, this is sign that you've created a vibrant energy that is compatible, more than compatible, but beneficial to your body. That is pretty pretty fascinating uh what you just said there and i'm I'm it's definitely going to really get my mind going for the rest of the night contemplating a a few of the points you just made but especially this concept of the philosopher's stone and correct me if I'm, i'm misunderstanding you but the philosopher's stone potentially being related or being a bacteria or bacterium no but that's part of of creating it like okay for the plant work you ferment the plant to capture the spirit and to distill off the alcohol right that represents the spirit of the plant world so what is you know in in keeping with as above so below uh the plants being above the mineral work there must be a similar situation in the mineral work what microbe helps isolate the spirit of the minerals well the archaic microbes do that in nature. They they take substances and and some microbes actually uh, collect gold out of the water and clump it up together in little nuggets. You know, um, they they the archaea make take things out of their environment and process it just like the yeast do in making alcohol. So the archaea make a similar substance or a similar transformation in the processing of the philosopher's stone. So I, I think that has a lot to do with making this stone. They used, yeah, they used to take mud out of the Nile because that river flows through volcanic regions and sweeps some of these archaic down into the river, and they use that to make the stone. Well, you know, that that's just so fascinating to me because it's always been... I mean, if you look at bacteria and you look at the what function they they serve in nature, they pretty much are. I mean, their their function is to transmute things, you know. Yeah. I mean, that is what they're there to do. And I've always sort of intuited, you know, if we could understand bacteria on a more thorough, deep level, we could really take. I mean, it really. I, I think I think you're correct in saying that it very well may be the catalyst to finally reaching, you know, the the sort of apex in a philosopher's stone, or or at least coming up with some pretty cool medicines, or you know, um, I I've heard of people. Um, there's a researcher. I forget of what college he's from, but he uses bacteria as he doesn't shower, and this guy's engineered a form of bacteria or a strain of bacteria that he just simply sprays on his skin every time he get uh every morning and this bacteria feeds and literally keeps his his skin clean he's not he no longer uses needs to shower and he's wow it's because he's figured out and understands that if you could leverage bacteria you could transmute something like you know oily skin or you know odor causing bacteria as a way to self-clean yourself why can't we apply that same logic into regenerating regenerating our cellular dna or you know yeah you know instead of nanobots we've already got them sure exactly (laughs) it it essentially is a form of nanotechnology in a way 
Yeah, and, and you can alter their benefits, the gold. The mining industry uses uh, archaic microbes to purify gold. And over the 40 so years that they've secretly been doing this, uh, which is obviously no longer a secret because I read about it, the bacteria themselves have evolved to do this work even better. So they can't even be found in nature anymore. So why not do that on a health level? Right, right. You know, coax them to do the work that we want them to do and see what happens. It, you know, bacteria bring us all kinds of benefits. We wouldn't have cheese mm. without them, you know. And that bacteria comes from the stomach of a grazing animal. So we can look into these springs and, and consider the fountain of youth as a real story and find the bacterium that help bring us health, that separate the impurities from our bodies without payment. Right. And, yeah. It, it sort of seems like, you know, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction in the mainstream as of now with all our, you know, our hand sanitizers and our overly yeah. sanitized society. You know, yeah. why not, it, you know, go f sort of full circle with that? Yeah, they had a an infection in one of the clean labs where they make satellites and stuff, and they couldn't figure out where where it was coming from because hmm. they can't launch the them into space if they can detect any kind of bacteria on them. And they were having this problem, and they found the bacteria was in the, the cleaning solution they were using. So it had adapted <laughs> to live in the cleaning solution, and they were actually spreading it all around when they cleaned. Yeah, you... You gotta work with them. You Nature can't work always against finds them. Play. Yeah, they need your friend's idea so they can spray it down and have the bacteria clean the room. Right, exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Tim, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, I think we're about out of time, though. Do you want to um, <clears throat> tell the audience? where they can find uh, your books, where they can find your website, where they can engage with you, your contact. Alchemyastrology.com. And I have a, a, a group of the same name in Facebook, uh, Alchemy Astrology. Um, so they can contact me in, through those two avenues. And uh, you can buy the book on, on that website. Just click on my handbook. And that'll get you the basics of astrology and how it relates to basic herbal alchemy and other forms of alchemy. And it's pretty simple. It's not, you don't have to know a bunch of math. Uh, I, I think the average is a couple of weeks going through the book and, and making your own birth chart. You'll get a great understanding of how astrology works. And a lot of astrologers want to make it sound real complicated. Uh, I'm not sure for various reasons, but it's really not that complicated. And I'm glad to help anybody who purchases the book and contact me through those two avenues or through my email, Tim at alchemyastrology.com, and I'll answer any of their questions. And I think I've only had two questions since I published the book in 2011, so it, it's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll definitely take a look at that, and you'll definitely have uh, 
have at least one new member tonight here on the Facebook group as well. Great. Um, <laughs> Great. So our guest has been Timothy Wilkerson, alchemyastrology.com. Uh, you can find those links wherever you happen to be listening to this video, whether it's our website or YouTube. Those should be in the text right below the embed. So I am Eric Scott Picard. This has been the Free Radical Media Podcast. I'm joined by Patrick Ryan, as always. And you can engage with Free Radical Media uh, many different ways. We definitely would like to ask you to please consider contributing to our Patreon. Uh, we'd like you to take a look at our Patreon page, listen to the podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the stuff we've been putting out and you would like to see more content from us, you can go on to patreon.com slash freeradicalmedia. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and the majority of your social media outlets. So, it's a good show tonight. I hope you all tune in next time. Free Radical Media Podcast.